The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Fitch strips the U.S. of its top-tier credit rating, citing fiscal deterioration and political deadlock as the surprise decision draws the ire of Washington. Markets digesting the downgrade, with Asian equities sinking deeper into the red and U.S. futures following suit. Siemens Heldineas confirms its folia top-line outlook despite diagnostics revenue taking a hit in the third quarter. We'll speak with the company's CFO, Jochen Schmitz, in just a moment. And a grand jury indicts former U.S. President Donald Trump on four counts over alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election result. And a very warm welcome to Squawk Box from Tenvir and myself. Some major news uh, regarding the U.S. overnight. Let's get straight to it. Fitch has stripped the U.S. of its AAA credit rating, downgrading America to AA+. The agency cited a steady deterioration in standards of governance over the last 20 years, following the highly fraught bipartisan talks in May, which eventually saw the debt ceiling raised until January 2025. The agency had placed the U.S. on negative watch following the 11th hour deal. And Fitch also flagged a high debt burden, along with an expected mild recession in the fourth quarter. Now, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen hit out of the decision, describing it as, quote, arbitrary and based on outdated data. Well, somewhat counterintuitively, after this reaction, what we are seeing is a bit of a flight to quality. So money is going in to U.S. Treasuries. Very interesting reaction over here. The U.S. 10-year note is at 4.03. We're about one and a half basis points lower on the yield, contrary to what you would think would happen in a situation like this. The five-year note at 4.22 and then the two-year at 4.88, also down about two basis points or so. So perhaps the uh, fixed income market is reacting more to the fact that this is a risk-off event rather than a US-specific event. It hasn't really scared off investors from buying fixed income at this juncture. So very interesting market reaction as far as treasuries are concerned. As for other markets, well, this is the picture for global yields. There's one in particular I want to draw your attention to, of course, that is 10-year JGBs. Ever since the Bank of Japan tweaked uh, their YCC policy, the upper limit, we have started to see an upward drift in these yields, sitting at 63 basis points. This is the highest level since 2014 for those JGBs. And as, as we've been speaking about on the show the last couple of days, the fact that JGB yields are moving higher should, in theory, put upward pressure on other U.S. Treasury yields. Not the case today. Uh, we've got the French OAT at 310 and then the 10-year Bund at 253. Yesterday was a deep down day for markets. So again, we did see a bit of a flight to quality bid going into fixed income. As for the dollar, well, this is interesting as well. You would think again, after one of the major credit rating agencies downgrades the U.S., that the U.S. dollar would lose some steam. We've lost a little bit. 
but not so much. And you can see here, uh, the dollar is actually stronger versus the renminbi. So uh, again, continuing with the theme of Chinese uh, weakness, currency weakness versus the US dollar. So it's stronger there. Uh, it's stronger. Uh, well, the yen is gaining some ground versus the US dollar to the tune of four tenths of a percent. But look over here, the euro is slightly stronger versus the USD, so it's only a fraction weaker. And then the pound as well, 127.80, also showing a little bit of weakness for the dollar, but only marginally so. So we're, we're talking about less than a tenth of a percent at this point. Jumana, let's take a look at the equity side of things and also bring you the equity reaction to the Fitch downgrade. Let's start with the Asian markets first and look at how things panned out for Asian markets. Uh, you have to remember that uh, that most of Asia was under pressure this morning because of uh, some bit of profit taking that hit the markets there. We are looking at uh, the scoreboard looking like this uh, for the Nikkei 2 to 5 down 2.5%, Hang Seng Index uh, down about 2%, the Shanghai Composite also under pressure. Uh, these markets are doing their own thing. You have to keep that in mind. Uh, the Hang Seng Index yesterday, we had the retail sales numbers uh, for uh, the Hong Kong market, which looked very encouraging. But today is a down day for the market sentimentally. ASX 200 also under pressure. So Asia feeling the ripples of the, uh, the US uh, Fitch downgrade. And we'll talk about that as we go along even for the Nikkei 225 uh, we are seeing some profit taking because obviously a lot of the money is moving into the fixed income market US futures then very quickly want to mark that for our viewers a bit wobbly but I wouldn't get too scared with what's happening there because uh, you've seen such a dream run for the markets 9% year-to-date gains for the Dow Jones 20% for the S&P 500 36% for the Nasdaq they can give back a little bit I don't know how much of uh, this news really moves the market in a meaningful manager. Yeah, well, let's talk more about the Fitch decision. I think the timing here is quite interesting. And a lot of people have been quick to uh, have very quick to respond saying, what is the new information that Fitch are latching onto? Why have they decided to make this downgrade decision Seriously? now after that debt ceiling limit had been raised a, a couple of months ago? And if you go back to the reasons that they cited, they talk about the fact that uh, we are now in a lower growth in a period of lower growth. There are new spending initiatives and also a higher interest rate burden. They've put in a nice chart uh, in, in one of the reports showing that interest rates as a percentage of government expenditure continue to move in the wrong direction. So that is their justification. But ultimately, all of this was known. And it is surprising, especially on the lower growth side of things. For months now, we've been talking about the possibility of a U.S. recession. Yeah. That hasn't transpired. And if anything, we just recently got a stronger Q2 GDP print, mm -hmm. suggesting that at least in the first half of the year, growth for the U.S. was positive. So I do wonder about the timing of, of this announcement. Yeah, and it's also a bit of a deja vu because we remember what happened with the S&P downgrade way back in August 2011. I was just looking at the chart of the S&P 500 since that point and 12 months hence. The S&P actually returned 15% after that announcement. So who knows how the markets take to this, given that the only difference was uh, at that time, the S&P downgrade marked the bottom in the market. And right now, the market is already looking toppish, uh, going at 20 times forward earnings. Uh, I think the important aspect is fiscal discipline as well as fiscal prudence, or what mm. Fitch is highlighting, uh, that uh, given uh, the debt ceiling issue, the U.S. government will not be able uh, to walk the path of uh, fiscal discipline and tightening on the fiscal front. They yeah. are anticipating uh, that the 
budget deficit would rise to 6.3% in 2023 yeah. from 3.7% in 2022. I think you raised a really interesting point about politi political deadlock. And that is, again, one of the points that Fitch raised. He said there's little near-term sign of political agreement to further address risks to the public finances. Uh, and, and if you think about the state of U.S. politics today, um, there has been no room for bipartisanship. It, it is very, very polarized on all of the decisions. We saw it around the debt ceiling because the decision was a very last minute one. It really had to move to the wire in order for policymakers to come to an agreement. It was a case of who blinks first as opposed to let's think about how we can resolve these more longer term issues together. These, and I think that is one of the concerns also that they're, they're citing. It's not just about the numbers, it's mm -hmm. also about the state of politics right now in the US. Yeah, but we've seen that playbook. You know, we've seen that pretty much play out every single year. There's always the 11th hour, 59th minute deadlock on these debt ceiling talks, and then they resolve the deal uh, at the last minute mm. and work it out. So I, I don't know how much will the market really read into this event yeah. beyond a few days. I think the market would uh, quickly mm. move on. And to your point, as we spoke about, both the dollar is a little bit weaker, um, but treasuries, we are seeing a little money pour into Some treasuries action today, in treasuries about morning, two yeah. basis points lower. Well, for more on Fitch's downgrade, check out CNBC.com. We've got a full write-up. Siemens held in years, uh, third quarter revenues. Uh, let's talk about that. Uh, the growth there has topped 10%, excluding COVID antigen tests. Earnings per share came in at 53 cents, while adjusted earnings before interest tax EBIT margin uh, fell to just over 14% reflecting declining contributions from COVID testing. Uh, the group confirmed its outlook for fiscal year and uh, said that things uh, would be uh, pretty much holding steady going forward, though the guidance didn't seem that confidence-inducing. Uh, Jochen Schmidt is a CFO Siemens Heldineers, uh, joins us with his take of things. Uh, Jochen, good to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. Now, can you walk us through uh, your guidance and the outlook for the business and what are your main concerns uh, given the macro environment? Yeah, thanks and good morning from my side. Um, and we had, as you said, a very strong quarter. We uh, grew again with more than 10% ex-antigen like in the Q2. We had uh, the order intake was on the same level as prior year, which was very, very strong. We increased our backlog by a book to bill above 1.1 exactly 1.11 and we are in general very satisfied with the growth and top line momentum we see in the market as well as in the respective businesses therefore we feel very very confident to get to our outlook which is six to eight percent x antigen on the top line and even to be in the upper half of it on the bottom line we saw some headwind from foreign exchange over the year yeah and we guided for this already in the last quarter and because of this we see us very well underway to get to the lower end of the original guidance of two euro uh, for this fiscal year i understand uh, your broad outlook Jochen, but i also want to get your sense in on how are you using ai technology uh, in the healthcare space i believe uh, siemens heldeneers as well as uh, ge healthcare uh, are racing to develop uh, the next-gen AI solutions for personalized care. And I wonder how much investment is going into that. Yeah, AI is uh, on our R&D roadmap for a very long period of time, and we are clearly leading in this regard. We have applications out there which are AI-driven in, in almost in the triple digits, yeah? and uh, we 
increase uh, the offerings with AI on a constant basis. Yeah? And AI plays a role in a lot of fields. Yeah? First of all, if you start thinking about service, yeah, AI is used uh, to, to make our service more and more remote and more and more preventive. Secondly, we use AI in running our systems. Yeah, they support and uh, help physicians uh, to, to scan, for example, people in, in a much more meaningful way. And then think about post-processing, reading images. Yeah? AI is, is at the forefront of, of companions, so to say, to radiologists. And uh, this is only one example. Other example is that we use AI also to to develop treatment plans on, on cancer treatment and other fields. So AI is one of the main investment areas for us in R&D. Mm. And yet again, you, you have to be quite discerning about where the money is going. And the reason I bring that up is the last quarter, you, you saw quite a big write-off in your heart surgery robot business. Um, and, and that was not a pleasant experience. So I wonder how that has shaped your view of where you want to allocate money and what sort of returns you're looking for before you decide that a business just isn't worth it? Yeah, it's a very good question. Thank you for this. Yeah, I mean, with our investment into uh, endovascular robotics, we entered a completely new field of medical practice. Yeah, Robotics is so far not really used in endovascular procedures. Yeah? And when you start, so say, uh, discovering a completely new field, yeah, uh, you need to be prepared that things might also not work out in, at the same speed you would expect it upfront. Yeah, and this is what we experienced. Therefore, our decision was clear. We now divert, so say, the efforts from endovascular procedures in the cardiology space into the neurology space because the neurology space, which was always on the roadmap for endovascular robotics, is the more complex space. And there, the opportunities using robots instead of performing the procedures manually is, is much higher. Yeah? And therefore, the opportunities with robotics are here much higher. And I'm very, very convinced that this will be a success in the, in the future. Thank you, sir. A very clear answer. I want to turn somewhere else. Uh, can you give me a sense of how you see the diagnostics business going forwards, especially since we have seen a big drop off in demand for COVID-19 antigen tests. That is one area of concern for analysts. Yeah, I mean, the, the COVID testing was, I would say for us, an add on to the business and not at the core of the business. And we were always very clear about this. Yeah, therefore we also gave guidance always X antigen and that was also, I think, uh, highly, highly welcomed. Yeah. Our, Core business uh, in, in diagnostics is in a transformation mode. Uh, we have just uh, released uh, a new analyzer, a Telica uh, CI analyzer, which addresses the low and medium volume labs. We just got the approval from the FDA uh, to release the instrument also in, in the US market. And this is the basis for consolidating our complete uh, product portfolio in immunoassay and clinical chemistry to one technology stack, which is Italica on the instrument side, as well on the reagent side. And we make good progress. And we saw this quarter already, the first signs of progress of improvement because we returned to growth in the core business and we broke even on the profitability side. 
Jochen, on the total shareholder returns uh, parameter, you know, your company has done fairly well and has uh, rewarded investors with dividends uh, and reinvesting profits, so growth on that front. Uh, but I do want to touch upon the, the net debt situation at the companies, and uh, your net debt is about close to four times your EBITDA. Uh, and one wonders, uh, given the pressure that we are seeing on rates, uh, I don't know how the financing works uh, for all the debt that you have on your books. Uh, but how are you looking at uh, your, uh, uh, you know, managing your balance sheet in this environment where there are growth challenges? Yeah, and thanks for the question. Uh, the first of all, um, we have a clear plan to delever over time. Uh, we came from north of four when we did the acquisition of Varian, which was the main driver behind behind our relatively high debt or net debt level today. Um, when we look at the numbers, uh, it's, I would say, dangerous to look only at a quarter. Yeah? I mean, the Q2 and Q3 are normally the quarters which are most uh, impacted by, first of all, the dividend payment, which happens in Q2, yeah? and which, as you rightfully said, is relatively high. And secondly, uh, we bought back shares last quarter uh, in a relatively extensive fashion for our purposes, and therefore we saw a slightly weaker KPI on net debt over EBITDA. But we are very, very confident that our cash-rich business uh, and cash-generating business uh, will boost, so to say, our, our improvements with regard to net debt over EBITDA over time. And finally, Jochen, uh, talking about uh, your presence in China and your expansion in uh, the region there, you're investing an additional $140 million there, which translates into 1 billion yuan uh, for research and production site in Shenzhen, uh, the Guangdong province. Could you walk us through uh, how much China can contribute to your overall earnings and profitability going forward? Yeah, I mean, China is, an, is a very important market for us. Uh, China is uh, the fastest growing healthcare market over the years. Yeah? And uh, our relative share in China is less than 15% of revenue. Uh, and uh, we have a very strong position there. We have strong value add there. We manufacture and develop in China for China and, and, and the respective region. And uh, we believe that with uh, uh, even higher emphasis on this market, you know, we can contribute to the development of the China healthcare system over time and are very, very positive about our relative position in China. Very clear. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show, Johan Schmitz, the CFO of Siemens Healthineers. And also coming up on Squawk Box this morning, CNBC has compiled a comprehensive list of the world's top 200 most innovative fintech companies. From neobanking to crypto to alternative lending, we'll break down the key findings later this hour. And Schaeffler earnings are also on deck at the top of the next hour. We'll bring you the numbers and speak to the CEO, Klaus Rosenfeld, at 8.30 CET. And we'll be rounding up all the market action with famed investors Mark Mobius, founding partner at Mobius Capital Partners. Do not miss that conversation at 9.30 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Keeping it with the consumer business and consumer earnings, shares of Starbucks traded lower and extended trade after the cafe company uh, pretty much reported mixed third quarter results. The earnings beat expectations, but same store sales growth slightly missed forecasts with softness seen in the U.S. and across international markets. However, the world's largest coffee house chain posted a sharp recovery in China. Can you believe that? With sales surging 46% in that region. More U.S. earnings. Uh, Uber came out with numbers. Uh, shares fell despite uh, the ride-hailing company posting its first ever, first ever quarterly operating profit and raising its guidance for the current quarter. Uh, the market being futuristic, I think, had pretty much digested this earnings trajectory beforehand. Revenue missed expectations at $9.2 billion, and the CEO told analysts rival uh, that is Lyft has become a tough competitor due to its pricing strategy. In fact, Uber's CEO told CNBC he remains confident on the company's future. What I can control is what we're doing operationally, the service that we are offering to our consumers. And the service keeps getting better. Audience grows, grew by 12% on a year-on-year -year basis. The frequency of use uh, by our actives grew 9% on a year-on-year -year basis. You combine that with cost discipline, you get free cash flow over a billion dollars a quarter. The stock price will take care of itself. And also in tech space, AMD shares are rising in extended trade. After the company said it expects its specialized AI chip to boost sales over the rest of this year. Revenue for the second quarter beat estimates, but still fell 18% on the year amid continued PC demand weakness. The CEO Lisa Su told analysts the company sees data center demand ramping up sharply in the second half. Arjun joins us with more. Yesterday we were saying that uh, all of these companies are using the word AI on their analyst calls. And of course, uh, AMD are no exception here. They're talking about this new AI chip that they're manufacturing. Um, what sort of potential is that going to offer to AMD and how much of a challenger could they be for NVIDIA? Yeah, I think this tech earnings season has been, I think, characterized by, by this theme of the AI hype versus the reality of where we're at now. And that's really what AMD's earnings were all about. The context for this is there's a big chip glut, there's weak demand for PCs, and overall it's a pretty lackluster quarter for AMD. But why the stock was up after hours was precisely that, the excitement around this AI chip. You mentioned the MI300 coming out in Q4. Now, this is AMD's big challenger to NVIDIA's GPUs. Now, these GPUs, graphics processor units, is not really the wheelhouse of AMD. It's something NVIDIA has pretty much dominated the entire market with. But now AMD coming to the fore in Q in Q4 with the MI300. 300. There's a lot riding on this and the company itself is very bullish. They're saying they expect 50% growth in the second half of the year for the data center business, which is what this chip will be included in. Pretty much driven by this uh, uh, single chip and the demand for AI. Look, there's huge because there is huge demand for NVIDIA's chips as well. There is somewhat of a, of a shortage to some extent. So AMD hoping it can fill the gap in that area as well. So, so certainly a lot of potential. The question is, uh, right now they're testing it with customers, according to, to the manager. Um, what is the performance like versus NVIDIA's chips? So that's going to be key over the coming, I think, weeks. We'll find out our large customers, the likes of Microsoft, the likes of Amazon, some of the big hyperscalers uh, going to want to buy this because it's better. 
than NVIDIA's or, or, or cheaper? Mm. Um, and how's that going to play out? And I think those are some of the questions we're still waiting to hear. The company very tight-lipped on who the customers are at this point, who they're testing with, uh, and sort of some of the pricing around it. But certainly th those are the questions that, that the so investors want to hear. It's not manufactured yet. This is a look ahead. It's coming it's out. Point, it's coming out in future markets are futuristic. Uh, I know. And you know, the interesting part is to the point that you were making about AI hype, right? They said in their press release, are AI engagements increased by more than seven times in the quarter but if you analyze it, that doesn't equate sales. That's not sales. Right? And no. so just, you know, talking about AI hype, yeah. that's what the market is latching on to. And you see the gap between NVIDIA as well as um, AMD from a year-to-date perspective. It's, it's huge. Mm. Do you think the market can bridge the gap in terms of what they're signaling? Because even for NVIDIA, I know they are dominant in GPUs right now and they have a strong moat around it. But who's to say AMD can't catch up or the other players can't catch up? What's your sense on that front? Absolutely. I mean, look, NVIDIA does have a huge moment. It is really the only player in town for many of these companies doing uh, these large language models, doing huge training sets of, of AI. I think over the long term, you will see more and more players. Uh, and those will come from a number of places. AMD is certainly one of them, given their strength around uh, data center so far and, and where they're pushing with this latest chip. But also, what's interesting is you're seeing a lot of the big tech giants begin to design their own chips the likes of Google, the likes of Microsoft, looking into uh, specific chips for the workloads that they need to do. And that will also present another uh, challenge to NVIDIA because what will happen is these uh, tech giants will ultimately try to create customized chips to wean themselves off of NVIDIA to some extent. Those chips will be uh, manufactured likely by the likes of TSMC, mm. potentially Intel if it manages to catch up in terms of its manufacturing mm. process as well as Samsung. So as investors look down, I guess, the value chain of AI, the picks and shovels uh, of, uh, of the industry, uh, the chips are one thing who's making the chips as well, yeah. who's running the data centers. Yeah. These are all parts, uh, when you Very think complex. about the future of AI, where investors are going to be looking. I think that's why there was a lot of interest in AMD after hours as well. Like I said, lackluster earnings, but certainly a lot of excitement about that AI play later yeah. this year. Well, good for, good for the market to get a bit more competition in the space, because NVIDIA, as you were saying, have this large moat around their technology. So uh, it will play out in coming quarters. I just find it interesting that the market is uh, giving AMD uh, the second in, in line kind of premium to NVIDIA at this point in time. They're saying that, okay, NVIDIA is in the number one position, but next in line is AMD. Uh, and remember partly, I mean, NVIDIA's had a massive, massive run-up. And there are, I mean, AMD itself is up, I think, 60, 70% this year itself. But there are investors looking, where is the next leg up? Where can I get into? What is the company that's going to give me that next huge return? Uh, and certainly, they're just trying to figure out who that is right now. Maybe yeah. NVIDIA's in the running, okay. uh, AMD even. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.